Welcome to Torah Imecha Nach Yomi with the OU Women's Initiative. My name is Chana Ringel, and today we will be studying Tefania Parak Bet, Chapter 2. We concluded Parak Aleph with a harsh description of the oncoming Yom Hashem and the descriptions of Yehuda's sins and the painful destruction these actions would bring. Parak Bet, Chapter 2, begins on a more hopeful note with a call to the people to repent. And as we will see, the Navi, even citing the opportunity to possibly find some respite during this time of punishment that will now be unavoidable. The bulk of the parak, however, deals with the downfall and destruction of many of the nations surrounding Israel, all of whom have been a thorn in our side at some point in the past. The parak opens in Pasuk Aleph, Hit kosheshu the koshu hagoy lo nechsaf, gather yourselves, yes, gather, the nation who has no shame. Gather yourselves with the implication to do tshuva, to repent. The repetition, hit kosheshu v'koshu, is seen as a message to gather yourselves and then go and gather the rest of the nation. Some commentaries explain the term to mean gather your actions, your deeds, evaluate them, and reset your focus to align with the will of God. The Gemara uses this pasuk to teach us the valuable lesson of first refining our own actions and then moving on to try and impact those around us. A powerful lesson for any type of kiruv or trying to impact others is to first take a look in the mirror and be sure that we ourselves are living the lesson we would like to model and share. Immediately following is a criticism for our being, being quote-unquote, lo nechsaf. According to the most According to most, the criticism is for a lack of shame. We sin with a degree of arrogance and brazenness. Recognizing this will likely be something that could open the door to repentance for us. Rashi explains that lonech saf comes from the word to desire, that we had lost our desire to connect to Hashem. I wonder if perhaps there is also a sense that we are not wanted by Hashem in this state. The next pasuk tells us what makes this repentance so urgent and so worthwhile. Beterem ledet chok, kemot avar yom. Beterem lo yavo alechem, charon af Hashem. Beterem lo yavo alechem, yom af Hashem. Before the decree is born, before the day passes as the chaff, before the fierce anger of Hashem comes on you, before the day of Hashem's anger comes on you. The urgency in this pasuk is palpable. The word beterem, before, before it happens, is found three times. The cloud of anger with the term af Hashem is found twice. And finally, the word aleichem, on you, yes, on you, is twice as well. And included is yet another reference to this yom Hashem. As if to shock B'nai Israel into understanding that this is actually going to happen to them. We know from many places in Yirmiyahu that this generation did not believe that these prophecies of destruction that they had long heard and were being shared for generations prior would actually befall them. The term beterem ledet chok, before the decree is born, the image of pregnancy strengthens the urgency. There is a defined time frame at which a baby will be born. Tzvanya is telling the people that they are actually on the clock for this decree to happen. And although there is no way to undo the entire degree, as it already exists and is waiting for its birth or expression, there is still time to effectuate a change, to improve the outcome. And the Sha'aret Shuvah, the gates of repentance, are open until the last moment. 
the Navi seems now to shift from speaking to a more general group to speaking to those that were indeed living a life of following God, God's words. In Pasuk Gimel, in verse 3, Tzfanya states, Bakshu et Hashem, seek out Hashem, kol anve ha'aretz, the humble of the land, asher mishpato pa'alu, that have indeed kept his ordinances. Bakshu tzedek, bakshu anava, seek righteousness or justice, seek humility. Ulai tisasru biyom af Hashem. And perhaps, maybe, you will be hidden on the day of Hashem's anger. The prophet is speaking to the humble of the land who are following the laws of Hashem. And he's directing them to seek out tzedek, righteousness or justice, and anava, humility. We remember in the previous parak, the Navi chastised the people for not being mevakesh Hashem, not seeking out Hashem. In this parak, we see the term to be a mevakesh, a seeker, and are directed to pursue what seems to be the basis of connecting to Hashem, justice and humility. The Radak explains that there were indeed many people who did live lives of fulfilling Hashem's words. But in a time of gezerah, of harsh decrees of punishment, the tzaddikim, the righteous, will suffer along with the others. The Radak also comments on the choice of justice and humility, explaining that these are our greatest tools in impacting others. Years ago, in the days of Tzvanya, as well as today, in 2023, if we behave with humility and tzedek, it will be our most powerful means of communicating the value of Torah life and drawing others closer. The Malbim sees this as a call for a more, more familiar means of tshuva through fasting and prayer. The result of this will be that maybe, just maybe, the people will be, quote unquote, hidden from the anger of Hashem, hidden away in exile, hidden away for 70 years, perhaps, in the exile of Bavel, a far better end to meet than death. The Abarbanel suggests that maybe if we can succeed in this tshuva movement, that we will indeed be saved from the fury and that Hashem's anger will land elsewhere, leading us to the next part of the parak, describing the punishment and destruction of the surrounding nations. The Abarbanel warns us, however, that this juxtaposition is a strong lesson for the Jewish people and how to relate to what will come. He explains that our nation will need a deep and developed sense of humility as we will be hidden away in Bavel for the 70 year exile and we will eventually recover and return while the other nations listed will suffer their end never to be heard from again. And that we as a nation should approach this with a sense of humility. The first nation the Navi speaks of in Sukkim Dala to Zion, verses four to seven, is that of the Plishtim, or the Philistines, located along the western coast of Israel and with whom we have had a long history of tension throughout the earlier books of the prophets. Four great Philistine coastal cities are named Aza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron, which will be forsaken and desolate, leaving the impression that their inhabitants were forced to flee for safety. We think of Aza today, located near the area of Jordan and southward, and it is largely barren to this day. In verse 5, the term hoi, woe, will be onto them, using a variety of terms to describe the Plishtim people, the chevel hayam, those whose lot is in the coast, the nation of kretim. Some commentators see this as an allusion to their end, karet, being liable for destruction. They are also called the people of Canaan and, of course, the Plishtim. The prophet is warning the people of Judah 
that the punishment of Yom Hashem will take down the plishtim. And if we do not repent, it will take us down as well. Going on to describe how it once was a metropolis of bustling coastal cities will be devoid of human settlement and used as pastures for shepherds and their flocks to stop into. Concluding the piece about the plishtim is a glimmer of hope where the Navi states that the remnants of Yehuda will benefit from the remaining houses and lands, the She'irit Yehuda, because in verse seven, Kif Kidem Hashem, God will remember them, Pakad, he will remember them. Just as God in chapter one, verses eight and nine, Pakad, will remember us to punish us, here the very same term, God will remember us for the good, to restore. Even using a play on the word Chevel, that what was Chevel on the seacoast and what's going to be destroyed of the Philistines will be Chevel as in Nachala, a lot for the settlement of the Jewish people. As Hashem will return us to stat, return our status and we will return to Eretz Yisrael and even inhabit these lands of the Plishtim once again. The term remnants of Yehuda is a double-edged one. On the one hand, it is a source of comfort as there will be a restoration and return for the people of the kingdom of Yehuda. On the other hand, the terms remainder and remnant imply the preceding destruction that left this remnant and the nation is no longer whole. The Plishtim were in part successfully attacked by Mitzrayim, by Egypt, as described in Yirmiyahu chapter 47, but they completely disappear from the record a little bit later on in history, shortly after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash in the seventh century BCE, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, Babylon, and unlike the Jewish people, they are never heard from again. In verses 8 to 11, the prophet moves on to attack the nations of Moab and Ammon on the eastern borders of Israel. Nations who the Navi explains will now be taken to task for their treatment of the Jewish people. Their history of insult and reproach and bringing embarrassment upon Bnei Israel will bring God's wrath onto these nations. We know from the book of Blachim that these nations joined in attacks on Bnei Israel and played a possible role in supporting Ashur, the Syria, in attacking Israel as well. Their state will be, the Navi says, like Sodom and Amorah, this comparison being the ultimate biblical blow of destruction, leaving their lands with nettles and salt pits in perpetual desolation, eventually to be given to the remnants and survivors of Bnei Israel. As with the Plishtim, once Ammon and Moab are taken down, they too do not recover as a nation and do not again enter the stage of history. And this is promised in the strongest of terms. Lachain, therefore, Hashem Israel. Therefore, as I live, God swears, and we find three consecutive names of God: Chai Hashem Yud Hey, the Tetragamon, followed by Tzvakot, God the warrior, warrior, the lead military term, and Elokei Israel, the God of Israel. Here we are with numbered years until the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash, and just a few verses. After the Navi rebukes us for not seeking out God, for rejecting God, and for choosing Avodah Zarah, the Navi now reminds us that Hashem has not at all abandoned us, and he refers to himself as the God of Israel, as our God, and has zero tolerance for those who belittle and poke fun and wish to humiliate his people. In verse 10, the Navi tells us that, Zot lahem ge'onam, it is this, it is their pride and arrogance of Ammon and Moab that has landed them at this dead end. And the Malbim explains 
that these nations were guilty of many other crimes, including murder and idol worship, but what brought on the wrath of God to this degree was how they treated B'nai Israel. Because the Pasuk continues, Ki charfu vayagdilu al-am Hashem tzvakot. This arrogance has allowed them to insulting and jeering at the nation of Hashem tzvakot. Again, the reference to our being God's nation and the association to the military or protective nature of that status. God is repeatedly, repeatedly attaching himself to B'nai Israel in these verses. Amon and Moab, in insulting B'nai Israel have in essence insulted God. The concluding verse of this section displayed, states that this display of Hashem's wrath and subsequent demolition of the institution of pagan gods will result in people from all the coastlands of the nations, meaning near and far, to bow to Hashem. The Malbin explains that there will be an understanding that their Avodah was not of true substance. Their pagan gods had no powers, and this will bring them to recognize and bow to Hashem. Both Abarbanel and Matsudot David, amongst others, explain that this portion of the prophecy, as we know, has not yet been fulfilled and will come to fruition in the future, in the final aspect of Yom Hashem. In verse 12, the Mavi, Navi moves briefly for one verse, for one Pasuk, to the Kushite nation, located south of Egypt, who he states will be killed by Hashem's sword. Matsudot David tells us that the Kushim, too, were joyous over the fall of Yehuda to Babel. And the Redak suggests that the Kushim are mentioned to inform us of the impact that Yom Hashem, the day of God, will have not only to Israel's immediate neighbors, but to the nations further away as well. We know from the book of Yirmiyahu that the Kushites assisted Egypt in their battle with Babel and likely fell in the year 605 BCE. If the Kushites were wiped out by Nebuchadnezzar, why then does the Navi state that they will be killed by the sword of Hashem? a subtle but necessary reminder to all of us that the stage of international affairs is performing a divine script and that it is not outside of Hashem's will or control. Rather, they are carrying out the divine will. This is an important perspective to keep in mind when we take a look at the past or present and we remind ourselves not to fall to the possibly misleading presentation that history can function either by chance or under the control of specific individuals and their choices. And to remember, as the Navi is telling us, that Hashem is control of that, in, in control of the stage. The final section of the parak, verses 13 to 15, open with, Vayet yado al tzafon, and he will stretch out his hand on the north, v'yabed at Ashur, and he will destroy Ashur, v'yasem et Ninveh lishmama, and he will put Ninveh to desolation. The remainder of the verses, 14 and 15, describe the downfall of Ashur, Assyria, However, there is a discussion as to who the first four words are referring to, and he will stretch out his hand on the north. Both the Radak and the Abarbanel explain that the nation of the north is Babel, who will be ultimately be responsible for the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and the exiling of the kingdom of Judah. And the verse then continues to Ashur, found just north of Babel, who had been responsible for the exile of the 10 tribes years earlier. Following the previous theme of those who have quote-unquote hurt God's nation, the concluding section deals with the two nations most responsible in these times. It is clear, though, that other than, that other than the first few words, the remainder discusses the fall of Ashur, Nineveh being the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which fell to Babel in 612 BCE. There's likely some comfort 
in the people of the, to the people in the, of the kingdom of Yehuda, being able to see the downfall of the Assyrians who brought such devastation on the northern kingdom of Israel years earlier. The desolation of these ornate and illustrious cities is described by the wildlife that will take over. With ka'ot and kafad on the kaftorim, we hear the repetitive ka sound. The porcupines and pelicans will be perched on the decorated door flame frames with the sounds of birds calling reverberating through otherwise empty land. The final pasuk describes Ashur in terms in which Yehuda may be able to relate to. A city once joyous and secure. How could she have become so desolate, the Navi asked, open to animals and a source of wonder and disbelief to all who pass by. Eich haita l'shama. How was she for desolation? Eich, how? A foreshadowing of the eicha that we will come to feel and live during this very generation in Sefania. The fall of Asher was just years before the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash in 586 BCE. And witnessing this once great Assyrian empire fall and the great contrast in the description of what it will be to what it should, what to what it was, should indeed be a warning to the kingdom of Yehuda. In this final Pasuk, the Navi gives us yet another insight into what will bring us down, telling us that Ashur, full of joy and self-assurance, Ha'umra bilvava ani va'afsi od, who said in her heart, and meaning held the belief and attitude that Aniva Afsi Od, I am, there is no other. I am and there is no other. This phrase of Aniva Afsi Od has become a term referring to the element of narcissism that stands as the antithesis to a Torah life. It's a mentality that inherently prevents one from recognizing and subjugating themselves to Ratzon Hashem, to, the, to God and his will. What is tricky about the I am it attitude is that there are many roads that can lead one there. It can be professional success, intelligence, wealth, or lust that can all mislead us to this paralyzing space of aniva afsi od that prevents us from recognizing Hashem and destines us for doom, as the Navi tells us. The Be'er Mayim Chaim explains that if we function from a place of aniva afsi od, it will drive us to mistreat others. If we recognize only our own value and we are not able to recognize the value of others, we won't care what they think, we won't care how our actions impact them, and essentially will fall into a destructive narcissism that will, of course, translate into our avodat Hashem, our service of God. Because if it's all about me, then there is, of course, no room for Hashem. That is the exact opposite of the humility and justice that the Navi called for at the onset of this parak, where he reached out to both the Rishaim and Sadikim, telling those who had no shame to gather and repent, and advising those who were doing what was right to be Mavakesh, Anava, and Sadek, seek out humility and justice as the tools to develop and in order to survive. The messages of hope and despair are wo- woven through this chapter, often into the very same words or verses. Seeing the absolute and terrifying nature of Yom Hashem that will rain din and decrees of punishment on both Yehuda as well as the nations, with a rare show of somewhat tying our fate to the nations of the world on this Yom Hashem. Yet in the same breath, we are reminded that unlike those nations, we will continue to be restored. We will continue. We will be restored. That we are called Hashem's nation, and He will avenge those who have attacked us. We are also warned of the great consequences ahead for our gener- for our generations of sin, but the Navi empowers us with directions of how to mitigate the punishment and how to rebuild the bridges in our relationship with Hashem. Seek justice and humility, and there is still hope. 
Thank you for studying together. Le'iloi Nishmat, Riva Schwab, Rivka Bat, Alexander Sender.